0: Thank you.
1: the sound of God's voice, life is brought forth. It is all God's. It is everything. And God said, it is very good. And into God's good world, God spoke, creating image-bearers, caretakers, charged to tend and keep, sustain and develop, explore and rejoice in God's good world. Only remember, the Creator said, you are mine, my caretakers, my beloved ones.
0: Love and be loved and look to me and I will give you everything you need.
1: But then, another voice spoke. A question. A doubt. Did God really say? He doesn't love you. He doesn't want what's best for you. And then, the caretaker said no. Everything is ours, right now, and everything matters when we say it does. And instead, we take and destroy, deplete and despair, Through conquest and violence, we choose to rule ourselves and anyone else in our way.
0: Governed not by the infinite love of our Creator, but by the insatiable desire to fill ourselves with everything, but the only thing, the only one who can truly satisfy,
1: For we have forgotten who we are. We have forgotten whose we are. No longer caretakers, no longer beloved. We look to ourselves, believing we have found the truth within, but all we have found is deceit. For we exchange the truth about God for a lie.
0: And we are consumed by it consumed by sin and death and the consequence of rebellion against the creator of all things the author of life himself and seeking to ascend to his throne we attempt to recreate the world in our likeness in our image
1: forsaking the goodness of the garden for a barren land for all of creation mourns and falls in our wake all of creation mourns and falls in our wake
0: But the Word was not done
1: speaking. Once again, out of nothing comes everything. The Word said flesh, and it was so. The Word said love and kingdom and forgiveness of sins. The word said, you are mine, and I will bring you back to me. I will remember the promise I made to you.
0: And the caretakers began to remember, began to remember who they
1: are. As the word spoke seeds of the world to come and planted them in the soil,
0: He reached into the depths of the earth and was brought low.
1: Into the darkness, into the brokenness, into our rebellion. For he does not leave us to despair or die or vanish.
0: Like a father who welcomes home his children, a king who conquers the enemy, a savior who brings us back from the dead.
1: He endures what we could not, bearing the weight we never could to fulfill the law that we have long since broken. And give us the gift we can never earn.
0: He is the new Adam, the seed that crushes the head of the serpent, the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, the one of whom Moses and the prophets speak.
1: Our Passover lamb, the bread of life, the good shepherd, the light of the world, born in the town of David. Pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Taking upon himself the sins of the whole world, he is. Jesus! He is
0: Jesus, our Messiah. He
1: is Jesus, our Messiah. The Word made flesh lifted high on the cross to say, It is finished. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? For on the third day, our Lord rose from the darkness.
0: Christ, our King, has conquered the grave, and he has brought us back to himself we have been entrusted
2: with the gospel so we speak
3: i am not ashamed of the gospel it is the power of god for salvation to everyone who believes
4: i have become all things to all people that by all means i might save some i do it all for the the sake of the gospel all about this week is Jesus. And uh, we have gathered in this room uh, from all different backgrounds a lot of the same story, but one incredible Jesus. And when our story intersects with God's story, it tells a greater story. And uh, we're here this week to just make much of Jesus And uh, we are so excited that you're here with us tonight. Uh, Just as a way of introduction, because there's a lot of you we don't know, and some you do know, and you may know us, and we ain't never seen you, but we (laughs) we're glad to see you tonight. I'm JC Groves. This is Brian Edwards, Nathan Cravat, and uh, we got. (laughs) In case you didn't know, we had a podcast called the Recovering Fundamentalist Podcast. Listen, we got a Facebook group, and there's about 600 people. Like this is a podcast page? What? (laughs) Like to preference that up front? But we are so glad that you're here. If you are here from Hope Church, you're here as part of the RFP fam. Uh, we are so excited you're here, and this has just been a lot of months of planning and praying, and uh, we're excited to just hear from the Word and a uh, community, and uh, just have a great, a great week. We're so glad that you're here uh, with us for this week. Yeah,
3: and we thank everybody for driving in. We know a lot of you guys drove a lot of miles. We also have quite a few people joining us online. I think we've got, what, millions and millions on road, on road- and all all that other stuff so so, uh, thank you guys for being a part of this and I'm just excited about how this whole thing came together we had plans in the beginning we even started sketching it out and everything literally changed and the reason it did was because we kept coming back to the mission of the RFP and what it all started about and it's all about the gospel and that's really all we care about I love community I love all the things that come with this that God has blessed us with, but we chose to, if we had a weekend together, we wanted it to be about preaching the gospel. So thank you for being here, and we're praying that God uses this in a powerful way in all of our lives.
2: Well, welcome to our convention of beans and peas. Uh, We are so glad that you're here. Uh, You know, when we started the podcast, we had no idea that just over three years later there was going to be about... Two and a half million downloads of people who were hearing us share the story of how God brought us out of legalism and how we could minister to those who have experienced the same. And we're so grateful that God's brought this together. So never did we dream that we would have a conference called For the Sake of the Gospel. (laughs) Never did we dream we would be gathered at Hope Church Danville. And I just want to welcome you to Hope Church. I pray that our family will extend a great welcome to you. And if you need anything, uh, there you can ask me. I'll point you to the right person, and uh, we'll make sure that you enjoy your time here and that we try to serve you well. So we're glad you're here tonight, and uh, I think we're going to have a great time. The gospel is going to be preached. Anybody excited about that? Amen.
3: Amen. Let's open our Bibles together tonight. We're going to be in Romans chapter one, Romans chapter one. I cannot tell you how unbelievably amazing it is to be gathered here together with each one of you. And I just want to stand back and say for a moment, look what God has done. To God be the glory, great things he's done. We had no idea, no clue But God has a work. He has a plan. And I'm glad, I'm thankful that he can use broken vessels to bring a group of people together. Is it okay if I call us misfits? Is that all right? I mean, outcasts, that's basically who we are. We're misfits, outcasts. But God didn't forget about us. I think everybody in this room has walked through some sort of valley in your life that you thought you would never make it back from. Can I get an amen?
5: Yeah. Yeah.
3: But God, but God (laughs) knew why he took us through each of those valleys and where he was bringing us to for the sake of the gospel is more than a name. It is our mission. Is our vision. Paul said that he did everything for the sake of the gospel, including writing these words through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that I have the privilege of sharing with you tonight. And I'm speaking on the gospel defined, the importance of scripture and sound doctrine. But before we talk about what the gospel is, we have to stop, pause at the beginning and talk about what the gospel is not. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not open for interpretation. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not unclear. It is not lacking in power. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not remorse. It's not the American dream, the prosperity gospel. It's not good works or cultural transformation, social justice. That's not the gospel. It's not performance or religious piety. It's not church attendance, but it's not church less. It's not community. It's not detached from community. It's not emotions. It's not license. It's not law. It's not universal removal of judgment. And it is certainly not moralistic therapeutic deism It's not a moral revolution. It's not self-help. That's That's not the gospel. Those are counterfeit gospels that we see in our culture today, which is why it's important to define the gospel. Author Trevin Wax spent over four years compiling a list of gospel definitions when he was preparing to write his book, Counterfeit Gospels. And we're going to come back to this list, but I want to ask a question. Why is it necessary in the 21st century to define the gospel, shouldn't we have already reached that point? Well, it's necessary because people have different definitions of the same word. I could ask a fundamentalist and a Mormon if they believe the gospel and they would both say yes. Why is that? They have different definitions of the exact same word. I could ask a Muslim and a conservative Christian If they believed in God and they would both say yes, but they would both be talking about entirely different things. According to Aristotle, a definition is about what a thing fundamentally is. See, you didn't know Aristotle was a fundamentalist, did you? Well, he was. He said a definition is about what a thing fundamentally is, not about what we feel that thing is or what we wish that thing was. So definitions require words, and they have fixed meanings. When the meanings of words change, or if they come to mean the opposite of what they used to mean, or men in the past, we will no longer be able to communicate. And that's what's happening in our society, and in our culture. There are a whole lot of people that are not communicating. They're talking, they're using words, but they have totally different meanings. The Apostle Paul saw the importance of clearly defining the gospel in his letters to the churches. Peter, when questioned by Jesus, clearly defined the identity of Jesus Christ when he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So throughout scripture, we see that clarity and definitions are vitally important. If we look at a study of Church history, just a brief study of church history. It will reveal the importance of strictly defining theological terms. Again, why is that? Why is that so important? Well, have you noticed in your lifetime that churches and organizations do not slide right? They slide left. Why is that? because of definitions, because of lack of clarity of what the gospel is. Human beings, Christians, and non-Christian alike, we all tend to drift away from the truth. We all tend to move further from what it is that God intended us to believe. We live in a fallen world. It's called entropy, where things are consistently getting worse. They don't get better. They lose energy. They decay. They become more disordered and less acted upon by an outside force. This is a physical reality. It's a spiritual reality. When we are mentally lazy, we don't get smarter. (laughs) When we're physically lazy, we don't get stronger and we don't get more fit. Know from experience. (laughs) The same is true with theology. Words have meaning, and if we desire to be biblically faithful and effective, we have to remain vigilant in our study of, our understanding of, and our use of biblical language and concepts. We're called to contend for the faith in the book of Jude, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And there's nothing in our day that is more important to define than the gospel. So how would you define the gospel? Just think about it. How would you define the gospel? Going back to the list of gospel definitions that was compiled over a four-year period, the author took all all the definitions from past Christians and theologians along with current Bible teachers, and he organized them into three different categories. The first category... This group of people love to present the gospel through the filter of a gospel story. Think about this. We saw this in the video. This is the grand narrative of scripture. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Such a beautiful, beautiful way to present the gospel. Then there was another group of people that seemed to exclusively present the gospel as a gospel announcement. And this is more how we were raised. And this is why people have told us that the gospel is basically for when someone gets saved and then they move on from that. That is an understanding of the gospel as only a gospel announcement. This is about Jesus Christ, his perfect life, his substitutionary death, his resurrection, his exaltation. Praise the Lord. That is the gospel announcement. It's the heart of the gospel, the core of the gospel. There's a third category that's gospel community. and some communities, Some pastors, teachers seem to focus in on this. And this is God's church, the embodiment of the gospel. This is the manifestation of God's kingdom that has been entrusted with understanding, living out and proclaiming the gospel. So most groups, most churches, most denominations, most individuals, we focus on usually one of these categories, but we need to realize tonight it's not an either or situation when it comes to these gospel categories. All three of these aspects of the gospel are important. Think about it. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ makes absolutely no sense apart from the overarching story of scripture, the holiness of God, the righteous demands of his law, the promises in the Old Testament and his eternal plan. Christ's crucifixion doesn't make sense when we don't understand what's underlying it. The announcement of Christ's sinless life, His death, and His resurrection—it doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists to redeem and reconcile sinners who live in gospel community. Herman Bavink, the Dutch theologian, once summed up the gospel in this way, and I think it's beautiful. God the Father has reconciled his creation. God the Father has reconciled his created but fallen world through the death of his son and renews it into a kingdom of God by his spirit. J.I. Packer basically said he loves to present the gospel. The four essential categories of the gospel are God, man, or sin, Christ, and response. Again, including all of these categories. And there's no way that the human mind can ever fully grasp or express the depth of the gospel. At the same time, we can't do justice to the simplicity of the gospel. The gospel is not an easy message, but is a simple message that Christ died for sinners to redeem us from the curse of the law. So we are imperfect people entrusted with a perfect message. Yet as imperfect people who've been redeemed, we are called to study it, to grow in our understanding of it and to share it. And what God calls us to do, he empowers us to accomplish. And Romans chapter one illustrates this truth beautifully. Follow along with me if you will as I read from Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Spirit concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, Let's take just a moment to pause and pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would open our minds, open our hearts and our understanding through the power of the Holy Spirit to hear and believe and live out the gospel. Father, I pray that you would draw anyone that may be in this room that truly has never believed in the gospel to surrender their life to who you are and what you did for us. And Father, I pray that you would redeem them, reconcile them to yourself tonight before this night is over. And God, for those of us who know you, we've been redeemed, we're saved. God, I pray that we would have a renewed excitement about the gospel, that we would contend for the faith and not allow the definition of what you did and who you are. To be stolen from us in this day and age, in our generation that you have called us for such a time as this. <clears throat> Father, we ask that you would speak to your people tonight. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. So as we see in this passage, Paul barely gets out of the gate in the book of Romans in his letter to the Romans, and he gets to this phrase, set apart for the gospel of God. So as soon as he introduces the gospel to his audience, he immediately lets us know that it is God's gospel. It starts with God. It is his story. He planned it. He promised it. He protected it. And some of you are getting excited because I just went to alliterating in here. So that's when the real meeting breaks out, but i want to stop. I don't wanna take it too far. <laughs> he planned it. He promised it. He protected it. He delivered it. He accomplished it and he commissioned it to be spread in his world. He offered it to us. He adopted us and he put us to work in the family of God, in the family business, (laughs) spreading the gospel story. We are a part of the family of God, and there is no disciple that doesn't make disciples. We're called to be disciples of Jesus and to make disciples of others. He moves on from that and he says, not only is it the gospel of God, but then he says he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. So you can see how he's presenting the gospel through the lens and through the grid of the overarching gospel story. He connects it to the Old Testament. The gospel starts in Genesis and runs through Revelation It's the good news that met us at a certain place in time, but it was planned before the foundation of the world. And it was promised to us throughout scripture. So it's the gospel of God. He promised it beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son. So he moves on to the gospel announcement concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the gospel message. It's the announcement. We must believe this message, this truth to be saved. And this truth is concerning his son. It's all about Jesus, his identity, his sinless life, his substitutionary atoning death for our sins. He took our place and it's about his resurrection. That is the heart of the gospel. So we have the gospel story moving into the gospel announcement. Then he says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. He goes on down, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Here we see the gospel community that we've been saved, we've been called into. We have a new identity. We're not what we used to be. We are members of the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. We are a gospel community. We're called to do God's will on this earth as it's done in heaven. We're called to live like Jesus. That's something we're not capable of apart from the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. So the gospel, just from this one short selection of verses, and I could have gone many places in scripture to illustrate this, but from this one selection in the gospel in in Paul's letter to the Roman church, the gospel is clearly defined in scripture and we're called to believe it and to know what we believe. So on a very, very practical level, every single one of us are here tonight in one way or another because of something that started back in the late 1800s and became clearly defined between 1910 and 1915 when the fundamentals were written. Our lives have been touched in good ways and bad by fundamentalism. The fundamentalist movement in America was sparked as a response to what? Theological liberalism, redefining the gospel. Theological liberalism was and is an attack against the gospel. And here we are over a hundred years later, still talking about the definition of the gospel. So the five fundamentals were what? Inerrancy of Scripture, the virgin birth of Christ, substitutionary atonement, bodily resurrection of Christ, and the authenticity of miracles. That is not everything that is essential or foundational to the Christian faith. That is what was being attacked in that day and age and what they decided they were going to stand on. And the first fundamental is the inerrancy of Scripture. Why? Because it's through this doctrine that we know all the other doctrines of the Christian faith. It's through scripture that we learn about every single other truth that God wants us to know. And almost 4,000 times in scripture, the Bible itself claims to be the word of God, that God is speaking, thus saith the Lord, or some form of that. The prophets proclaimed it, and they claimed that it was revealed by God. Jesus believed it, he taught the Bible as God's word. He said that all of God's word would be fulfilled. And that the scriptures could not be broken. Someone estimated that one tenth, over one tenth of Jesus' recorded New Testament words were taken from the Old Testament. In the four Gospels, 180 of the 1,800 verses that report Jesus' words and teachings are either Old Testament quotes or Old Testament allusions. So it shouldn't be surprising that the Holy Spirit, through the apostles, based their writings in God's word that he had been revealing to people through the scriptures. The original fundamentalists understood the importance of scripture and sound doctrine, which is the proper understanding and teaching of scripture. Here's one quote from the fundamentals. This is the sum of the gospel message. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. It was a demand repeatedly and earnestly pressed by the Savior and taught by his apostles. That's what the fundamentalist movement started out being about. Before it turned into separatism. Before it turned into a whole lot of rules and a whole lot of other things that messed people's lives up. The core of what the fundamentalist movement was about was the inerrancy Of scripture. Another author in in the same, in the fundamentals, said the times demand of us a vigorous reassertion of the old truths, which are the very foundation of the gospel system. That's what they were fighting for. One of my favorite quotes from the book said this, a so-called savior whose only power to save lives is the excellent moral precepts that he gave and the pure life that he lived, who is no longer the God-man but a mere man whose blood had no sacrificial atoning or propitiatory power or in the moral government of Jehovah but was simply a martyr's witness to a superior system of ethics is not the savior of the four gospels or of Paul or of Peter or of John It is not under the banners of such a Messiah that the church of God has achieved its triumphs. And I say amen to that. And the final quote from the fundamentals that I think is so important for us to understand tonight, John Newsom said, the only true historically and scientifically true picture of the life and work of the gospel of Christ is the one which is given in the New Testament as a whole. The modern historians and philosophers tell the modern liberal theologians in very plain language to be honest and quit calling themselves preachers of the gospel of Christ if they do not believe in the Christ of the gospels and quit calling their congregations churches of Christ if they do not believe in the Christ of the church. And we need to echo the exact same truth today. We're saved. We're here. We're placed here for the sake of the gospel. We have to know what it is and we have to stand up for it and we have to be willing to share that truth. Just before daybreak in the spring of 1945, a young 21 year old girl was awakened from her sleep by a loud banging at her door. And when she went to answer the door, she was met by Nazi officers who demanded that she hitch up her horse and her wagon because she was needed. She obviously did what she was told to do and waited while the soldiers quickly loaded many crates on her cart. She made the trip multiple times back and forth To a lake where they unloaded the crates, and as she dropped off the final load, she saw that a group of Nazi soldiers were paddling out to the middle of Lake Toplitz and they were dropping the crates into the depths of the lake. So at this point in 1945, the war was nearing an end. Hitler was already dead. The armies of the United States and Great Britain were coming in from the west and the Russian soldiers in mass were approaching from the east. The German surrender was inevitable. Yet through her conquest and through the war, Germany had amassed an incredible amount of wealth and treasure, much of which was stolen from stolen from the countries that had been invaded and from the men and women who had been put in their death camps. As the Allied troops approached Germany, much of the treasure, as many of us have read and even seen movies, the gold, the silver, the paintings, and other things were hidden away in mountain caves. And those who knew of Lake Toplitz supposed that some of his treasure had been dropped in his depths. Well, 14 years later in 1959, a diving expedition discovered the crates that had been discarded in Lake Toplitz. And as suspected, they contained a hidden treasure that had been preserved very well because of the cold temperatures and the extremely low oxygen levels in this over 340 foot deep lake. And as the contents of the crates broke the surface of the water... They brought an end to one of Hitler's greatest secrets. The crates were filled with paper. And printed on the paper were the words, The Bank of England. The same crates that the young farm girl had carried to the edge of the lake so many years before had been filled with hundreds of millions of pounds in counterfeit British currency. So Hitler had selected dozens of Jewish craftsmen, printers, bookbinders, engravers from his death camps and enlisted them in what was called Operation Bernard. The plan was for this counterfeit currency to be released in Great Britain to bring the economy to its knees. And for two years the team labored to produce nearly perfect banknotes. They were supplied with the latest printing equipment, and the operation eventually produced today's equivalent of $4.5 billion in British notes that would have destroyed the economy. They quickly transitioned into producing a perfect copy of the American $100 bill. And at the end of the operation, they were producing up to a million dollars a day in fake currency. But then in 1945, with the Rome, Russian army only a few hundred kilometers from Berlin, the Germans were suddenly ordered to disband, dismantle the machinery and to abandon the project And before the prisoners were returned to their concentration camps, they were ordered to pack the banknotes into large wooden crates. Crates that were soon taken out to a lake, loaded onto a wagon, and dropped into the depths. Historians have said that had Operation Bernard been successful, it very well could have changed the course of World War II and most likely would have. Counterfeit currency could have changed the world as we know it today. And in his book, The Currency Wars, How Forged Money is the New Weapon of Mass Destruction, John K. Cooley tells how the North employed this exact same strategy against the South during the American Civil War. Jefferson Davis, who was the president of the Confederacy, told the Confederate Congress in Richmond, Virginia, just up the road from us, in 1862, how the northern soldiers spread mass quantities of forged notes as a means of spoiling the southern civilians. One Confederate legislator testified, whether their armies have invaded our country, these notes have been scattered, and it's one of the most destructive blows made against our government. The aim and tendency is to destroy all faith in the currency of this country. When most of us think about warfare, we think of guns, tanks, bombers, warships, planes. But the truth of the matter is espionage, political, psychological, and economic warfare play a bigger part in wars and their victories that most of us have ever stopped to think about. The gospel is our currency. And we have an enemy. And the enemy knows exactly how and where to attack us in each age. And in our age, like every other age before, one of his primary attacks has been against the gospel. Our enemy doesn't play fair. Sun Tzu said all warfare is based on deception. And one of Satan's favorite deception strategies is using false teachers to spread false doctrine in the church. And Satan has inundated our culture and our churches with a counterfeit gospel. Not just one, but many counterfeit gospels. And the only way we can recognize the counterfeits if we know the authentic gospel. Church, we have to know what the gospel is. We must know it. We must clearly define it in our generation. I didn't say redefine it. Scripture has defined it. We're called to hold to the definition that scripture has given us. We must clearly define it. And we can only do this if we value scripture and sound doctrine. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word that is powerful, that is true. Lord, I pray that this charge would sink deep into our hearts and our lives and that we would be people, disciples, fathers, mothers, husbands, wives, pastors, teenagers, children that would dedicate our lives to the truth of the gospel. The counterfeit cannot overcome the power of the gospel. And if your church will live it and share it, greater is he that sent us than he that in the world. And your message will not be stopped. And Father, I pray that this group of people and so many more that you are bringing together to reunite around the gospel and to realize that every suffering, every difficulty, every heartache, all the abuse that we've endured was for the sake of the gospel and has brought us to where we are today so that we can rest in you. But so much of what we knew of the church hurt us and let us down. God, open our hearts and our minds and our eyes to see you never let us down. Your truth has never failed. And that you're raising up people in this generation who know exactly what it means to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And that should make us wanna cling even more to the truth of the gospel in our day, in our time. Father, I pray that you would continue to work in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray.